0: Get What You Desire, and if you're new with us, I'm going to review a little bit of what we've been talking about. If you aren't, we're going to take a principle that we learned in one of our messages called Discerning What You Desire and begin applying it to key areas of our lives. So if you missed that message a few weeks ago, you can get our app, you can download it, and go back and watch that general principle. I'd encourage you to do so. It'll set you up and help you understand all these messages we're going to talk about from last week to next week. But today, we're going to take this idea of discerning what you desire uh, and apply it to a particular area of our lives, what we're going to call relationships today. How do you get what you truly desire in a relationship? So let me start by defining some things. If you're new with us or just to review if you're not, we're talking about a few different terms that I wanna define clearly so you understand how I'm using them. A want we are defining as a shallow, broken expression of what I truly Desire. So a want we're gonna use in the, in the form of something that's broken, it's a broken expression of what I truly desire. It's a result of our broken sinfulness that causes us to want things that aren't really truly gonna satisfy us, okay? A need we're using as the most basic and minimal supply of what is necessary. And then the last thing, which is a desire, is a deep affection that seeks what is truly valuable. So these are concepts, a a lot of which I've drawn from, i mentioned before, uh, a theologian and pastor named Jonathan Edwards who wrote uh, in his book Religious Affections, this idea of, of religious or deeper affections. I'm just using modern day terms to help distinguish some of those things. So wants and desires are the two things we're really contrasting. Let me give you a statement that I think helps you put these together. Wants reveal what I value. So if you want to know what you value personally, your wants Reveal that. Whatever you want, that kind of points to what you value. The problem is, is we're broken. And in our brokenness, our wants often go after things that aren't truly going to satisfy us. So I think of it like a kid. Remember, if you have little kids and they go to the grocery store or McDonald's, and they really want these toys, or they always want the little trinkets that are right at the checkout. And they think, oh, it's going to be great. I want to spend my money on this. And you're going, come on, it's going to be broken in like 45 minutes. But they want it so bad because not because it's valuable, but because they value it. Their want is broken, and then part of maturing our kids as an adult is helping them to not just want what they want at that moment, but begin to desire things that will be truly lasting and desirable. Well, the problem is little kids grow up to become adults that have the exact same problem. We just transfer our wants over to other things that will never truly satisfy us. And God looks down on us and goes, come on, Chad, why do you want that? I mean, it's a bigger toy than the one you had before. It's gonna last a few more years longer, but it's still gonna end up broken and still never gonna truly satisfy you. So we're learning how we discern that. Needs reveal what is necessary, but my desires seek what is truly valuable. Wants, what I value. Desires, what is truly valuable valuable. So today I wanna walk you through that. I'm gonna give you some pictures or illustrations as we've done in the past, right? Oh, wait a minute. Want, that wasn't what I had for that. What's the next one? Go to the next slide, no. Where where is is this? Is this like leftover from last week? Is this what happens when I'm gone? Is this the kind of trash that takes place here when I leave town, huh? What's the last one on this one? I don't even wanna, oh yeah, exactly. That's what goes on. Uh, there's just something wrong with that. Wrong. That is 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 wrong. wrong. Yes. That's right. That is completely wrong. Our president needed to, to speak into that situation, so. So let's pray and we'll jump into. we're going to be all over the place in terms of passages. so if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can, but I've included every reference I'm referring to in your notes kind of in those areas, so that you have them to go back to and refer to. So if, just focus on uh, the message today and what we've seen up here, and you can follow along from the screens. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth, for your word, for its guidance and for your presence in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we open your word today that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to not just understand these truths, but to begin to delight in them and trust in you because they are your truths. And I pray that you will begin to transform us uh, from our wants in the areas of our relationships to our desires and what is truly valuable when it comes to a relationship. And I ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Getting what you desire, there's five things I want you to see today uh, in this two categories. Three are requirements, requirements for healthy relationships. So there's three requirements you're going to see in these passages for a healthy relationship. And then there's two results that come when you have a healthy relationship. So three requirements, two results. Okay, the first one is this. Your first point is satisfying relationships require me to understand the relationship which is most valuable. Satisfying relationships require me to understand the relationship which is most valuable. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 14 when he was talking to some of his disciples. He said, if anyone comes to me, and I stuck Jesus in brackets there so you know that it's him Speaking, he's saying, me, Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, when you first read this, it's a little bit of a shocking statement. And that's exactly why Jesus said it. Uh, This was, in their culture, was a form of hyperbole that teachers would often use to catch a a group's uh, attention, as well as to uh, form a very strong dichotomy between relationships. Jesus did not intend for us to take this in a wooden literal way, meaning we should hate our fathers and our mothers and our wives and children, because that would be inconsistent with what he says in many other places in the Bible about loving and honoring those people. But Jesus is doing here is using an exaggeration hyperbole to compare two types of relationships. One of them is our relationship with him, and another is our relationship with any person in this world. And what he's saying is that in comparison to your commitment and your love for me, your love for other people should be almost like hate. Now, he's not saying you hate them. He's saying that's how strong our commitment must be to God, because he's the one that created us. He is ultimately the one who's given us everything. And our problem is, is we latch too strongly onto the things of this world and too easily neglect God. We want our peers to accept us and pat our backs and and make us feel good more than we want God to approve of us. And that's a huge problem for us. In fact, this is the very basis of any healthy relationship jesus must be a priority relationship for any of our other relationships to be healthy and if jesus is not the priority in your life then you can never have another relationship that's healthy it just can't happen in fact Think of the end result of any of your relationships. What's the end goal of any relationship you have? Just answer that question. What are you hoping to get out of that relationship? And let me ask you, is it possible, and you can pick any relationship you want apart from God, we'll pull him out of it now, to see if any other relationship is worthy of your full devotion like this. Is it possible for that relationship to fail you? Has that relationship ever failed you? And let me just paint, say the best scenario. Let's say you've had a relationship, a parent or a sibling or a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or spouse that, that you know, in your, you know, a little bit craziness, you think that they've actually been perfect. They've never failed you, okay? You think that. What's going to happen when they die? Are they going to live forever? You see, there is no earthly relationship that at some point, will not fail you. And it's either going to abandon you while it's living or it's going to abandon you in its death. It's inevitable. And so if you make those your priority, you have basically set your priority, your basis on something that can never last. But God rules over death. He proved it in his son. Have any of your relationships ever died and then raised again and can come back to fulfill their promises after they left or died? No, but he did. And until we prioritize him like that, you will always and only be able to have unhealthy relationships with other people. Second requirement is a satisfying relationship requires me, my mind to be transformed. A satisfying relationship requires my mind to be transformed transformed. This comes from our passage we've been using in a series on Romans chapter 12. Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the only way you can know what is good and acceptable and perfect is to know what God has to say about these different areas or these different topics. If we don't know them, you can never Basically, experience them. And so you need to know what God has said about various relationships. How many of you have spent time studying God's word in particular about the different relationships that you're in? Like how many of you have spent a fair amount of time studying uh, about what God's word says about marriage before you started dating? Or how about uh, parenting? Have you done a full study of God's word uh, about how to be a parent before you started having children? How many of you kids have studied what God's word says about being a son or a daughter? How about an employee or an employer? Ever done that? See, here's what's interesting about life, especially for us as Christians. Many of us and most of us have spent more time studying for our driver's license than we have for the most significant relationships we have in our life. And that's why most of our relationships are worse than our driving is here in Laredo, if that's possible, (laughs) right? But you need to know that. So we're going to go through five different areas here really quickly. You're going to have these on your own, but I'm just touching and just scratching the surface of these. But I just want you to put in your head some of these mindsets. We're not going to talk about them a lot, but I think you're just going to see how much God has talked about a lot of these different areas. So let me start with friendships. Let's start with friendships, because that's common to most of us. Proverbs 18 24 says this A man or a woman of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Here's what this proverb is saying, and I see this as being so common many times we all want to be accepted by so many people that we think the more friends that we have, the better things are. And so we want, and and when the Bible uses the term friend, it doesn't use it like we do. Oh yeah, that's a friend of mine you, you maybe had one conversation with. The Bible says a friend is someone you have a deep, abiding, ongoing relationship with. And so the irony of this is saying, hey, a man of many companions meaning just people that you know is gonna come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Here's what we often do. We try to maintain so many different relationships at a very shallow level in our life because we don't wanna disappoint anyone. And what ends up happening is we don't ever develop any deep, true relationships that we need to survive the difficult times in life. We don't have anyone in our life that could speak into our life in times when we're making decisions that are taking us in the wrong direction because we're too busy making sure everyone thinks we're fun to be around or we're at everyone's party or we're at every single scene that there is. The Bible says when you're that type of person, when you have to be known by everyone and you gotta know as many people as you can, you are on the verge of coming to ruin. But if you want to have a a true relationship, you need to spend some time in those settings and know that person and let them know you. Another one on friendships. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. So again, this is talking about friendship, a deeper abiding relationship, not just an acquaintance or someone you know. The Bible's talking about who you invite into your inner circle. And if you invite someone into that inner circle that speaks into your life, that's part of your inner core, that has character issues like anger and wrathfulness or other characters you could go with, then you are gonna become like them and you're gonna experience the consequences of their behavior because you've allowed them that close of access to your life. It's not saying you shouldn't hang around with people that have issues like this ever. It's saying, if these are your closest friends and your closest friendships, then they're going to change you and they're going to affect you as a person. Another one in First uh, Corinthians says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's kind of going off of what we just read. The people you hang out with will corrupt good morals, will corrupt someone who's going in the right direction path, your friendships will shape who you become. In fact, I love this quote by, uh, I forget who it is, but I didn't take credit for it because I didn't say it, but I love this quote. It says this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. The people that you uh, really closely network with, that you invite into the most intimate parts of your life will be the people who will shape you. And the Bible says you must be very careful and wise in choosing who those people are. If they don't have the same spiritual values that you have, then they're gonna lead you in a direction that's going to be uh, unhealthy for you. Moving on, dating. Let's talk about dating a little bit. That's another common uh, relationship that's big for all of us. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers.'" For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, this was an agricultural community, and so plowing a field was really a a major part of their community, so everyone would have known what it would like to be yoked, two oxen yoked together, and the yoke would go around the neck of each one of them. And one of the things you never did is you didn't yoke an older, you know, strong ox with a baby younger one, because it would like drag it around, it would go in circles like this, or or someone of different height. Don't unequally yoke them because it completely messes up the process. You can't get the work done you need to do. So Paul uses that illustration with us as people who we get into tight relationships with. He says, don't be unequally yoked. In essence, a believer should not be yoked to an unbeliever in a close, intimate relationship. God has no missionary daters. I know we think, oh, when I date him or when I date her, she's going to want to know the Lord. She's going to want to come to church or he's going to come to church. I can't tell you how many couples or how many individuals I have sat with in my office over 14 years who thought that was going to happen. And years later, they are deeply grieved and hurt and much more pain married than they ever were single. You see, the only thing worse than, and single isn't a bad thing, I'm using a metaphor. Single actually is held up as a very honorable thing in the scriptures, but nowadays we tend to think it's bad. And some people will tell you, the only thing worse than being single is being in a marriage that you don't wanna be in. Follow God's principles. And don't just wait for someone who's, who's just said, they, they said Jesus once, I heard him say it, that must be a Christian. I heard it come out of their name. It was I know he was swearing when he said it, but he said it. He must be a Christian, right? Women or, or men, if you don't find a man who's pursuing Jesus that just maybe shows up on Easter and Christmas and, hey, yeah, that's good enough, man, you are putting yourself in harm's way. He should be a man that's pursuing hard after God, who loves God more than he loves you. If he's willing to change all his behaviors to go after you, you may be flattered by that, but you will not be flattered in 5, 10, 15 years when he's chasing after someone else because of that. But find a man who chases hard after God even more than he chases you and you have a man that's charting a course that will be great for you in your future life as well. Next line in here is First Thessalonians says, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity." but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me say this to single people as well, because I have this discussion with every couple that comes to get married and starts the premarital issue, is the first question I ask on the form they fill out is, have you had sex already? Have you slept together? I just lay it out there right on the line because we're going to talk about that the very first time you met. So if you were thinking of getting married here, you might be checking out a different (laughs) church. But here's why. It doesn't mean you're disqualified. It means that you need to change at that point to be prepared for marriage. And I make them sign a covenant that says you will commit to purity from now. You'll recognize it's wrong. I walk them through a process of how they do that. And then you commit to purity until the day you're married. And here's why. See, many people think, well, I don't want to fall under those guidelines. Those are so old-fashioned, and, and I don't want to, you know, God says you shouldn't have marri- you know sex until you're married, I and mean, that just seems so restrictive. Okay, so then at least be consistent. If that's what you think, and I'll tell this to couples, if you guys want to have sex right now, you can make that choice, but don't come to me after the marriage when suddenly you want to follow God's guidelines that say you shouldn't have sex with anyone outside your marriage, because that's God's guidelines as well. So, If you wanna get married having sex right now, then when you get married, you better let your husband sleep with whoever he wants because that's also not God's guidelines just like it's not beforehand. See, we want it on one end selfishly and then we don't want it on the other end selfishly. You can't have one without the other. God knows how this works. And I have never met one person, I'm not saying they're not out there, but I've never met another person who's told me, Chad, I can't wait to get to that altar and look out at the crowd out there and see all the guys or all the girls that have slept with my spouse, they're supporting me now. In fact, every time I've ever asked them, when you stand at the altar, how many people do you want your future spouse to have slept with? I've only ever gotten one answer, even from people who are so far from God, they want nothing to do with them, the same answer, zero. You see, if you want that, if you desire that, then it requires you to submit to a plan that will accomplish that. And God's is the only one that does it. He's not saying you can't enjoy sex. He's telling you, this is the only way you'll truly enjoy it the way I intended. So you're either gonna believe him or you're not. But you'll never have a healthy relationship until you trust him with how he designed them. Moving on, husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So God gives us guidelines in our marriage. He calls us husbands. We are to be leaders, this passage says, but our leadership is a loving, sacrificial leadership. It's one that loves our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, we're not to sit on our recliner and say, "Get me another beer, honey. Fix me this. Will you take my shoes off? Will you wash this? Will you..." Die? And it doesn't mean your wife's not going to serve you. I'm not saying that but you don't sit like some ogre demanding your spouse like she's a servant. She is a woman made by God that you respect and you lay down your life for her. In fact, you might be taking her shoes off and getting her something to drink because she spent the whole day taking care of unruly kids while you've been out you know, doing whatever we often do when we go outside pretending that we're working, but we're really just hanging out with the guys, Right. I know how. I'm a guy. I'm giving away some of our secrets. I know you guys are going to get upset, but be a man who has the guts to serve and love your wife, and when you do, the second half of this, wives, is a lot easier. Wives, submit to your own husbands. All right, I got a lot of people leaving today, right, as to the Lord. Let me share this with you. I've never met a woman who has a problem with this verse when she's found a man who's committed to the prior verse. Not once. You show me a man who's got the guts to love and lead and lay down his life for his wife, and I'll show you a woman who's willing to submit to that kind of leadership 365 days out of the week. The problem, guys, is rarely the wife. I'm not saying it's never the wife. But when you see an unruly wife or a woman who's unwilling to submit to her husband, it usually leads back to a husband who does not have this perspective of what it means to be a godly husband. The reason marriages are in the mess they are in today is because we think this stuff is old-fashioned or it doesn't work anymore or we have a better plan. But why don't the statistics show that? Marriages and families are in one of the biggest messes they would ever been in. And we're in a time period where we were rejecting this truth more than we ever have in the history of our nation. So you do the math. Okay, moving on. We got parents and children. Parents and children. Children, say this with me obey your parents yeah isn't that a great one all the parents said amen i love the bible now it's probably your new favorite verse right parents for this is right honor your father and mother you know see god's an equal opportunity there's no two mother's days in this and one father's day he says honor your father and mother equally right so that's why we're having semana del hombre (laughs) it's coming up baby Woo! i'm getting excited That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Then he talks to us, parents, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, and this applies to moms as well, we in our pride often provoke our kids. We know you do that, right? We poke at them, especially when they're little, we poke at them because we can. and We poke and we provoke them until they get bigger than us and then we get really nice to them. Then right? we start treating him really kindly. Hey, let's hang out. Yeah, let's do that. But, but we are a problem as well. And it's very much like the husband and wife thing. When we as husbands love and lead them, doesn't mean we can't be firm with them, but we love and lead them. We give them the best opportunity to, to obey and follow as parents. Moving on, let's look at some of the issues of discipline. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We have so many philosophies, modern day philosophies that want to throw out biblical principles of discipline today, and where has it really gotten us? We think we're so smart as this modern generation, and yet, historically, we have the most unruly kids, a generation of kids that we've ever had, the most disrespectful in many ways, because... They don't have any direction. We're so afraid of leading them and loving them properly. The Bible says this as well, moving on. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, you probably don't think folly's bound up in your kid's hearts, right? But we gotta understand, our kids are born as sinners, just like you and I were. They look cute, they look really sweet when they're little, Right, But when they're crying and yelling, and I want to eat now, and I want this, I want that, man, they have all that stuff built up in them as well. And if we as parents are t- called through discipline to help uh, remove that from them. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not talking about abuse or any of those kinds of things. I'm talking about proper biblical discipline that's good for our children. One of the things I've seen in this modern generation is that parents are controlled by the need to avoid disappointment in their kids' lives. I think it's one of the biggest problems of our modern day parenting, is parents become controlled by the need to avoid disappointment in their kids' lives. And so they'll do everything they can to create an environment where their kids never have to experience disappointment. And then these kids go out into the real world And the majority of what they experience is disappointment. And they have no mechanism for how to cope. That's why we have 34-year-olds that are still living in our homes, because it's the only environment where mom and dad will always come and rescue them and make sure that they don't ever get hurt anymore. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mijo. Come back in here. (laughs) Mijo. I'm like 75, mom. Come on. At what point do you go from miho to manhood? That's what I want to know. Where's the line? (laughs) I'm just saying, I've lived in Laredo a little too long, right? (laughs) This may possibly, we may be possibly the most lost generation in parenting history in our nation. I don't think we've seen anything like this for the hundreds of years that our society has existed in America. And we have thrown out great principles that are right here to, to help us. We, if we don't, as a church, bring these back, we're one generation from absolute chaos in our nation we have the opportunity to bring that health back as a church. Last one is employee and employer relationships. Employee, employer. Okay, slaves, obey your human masters. Now, before that freaks you out, let me explain this culturally a little bit. When we read this text as modern Americans, we immediately misinterpret it because slavery in our nation goes back to a horrific, unbiblical, immoral practice that removed people from other nations and subjected them as less than humane to do work that they did not want anything to do with. That's not what Paul is talking about here. So you have to remove that ugly context in our own history and go back to their context to understand that he was talking more about an employee and an employer relationship. Because in Paul's day, back then, there weren't a whole lot of employees like there are now. Most people were agriculturally, they operated their own little business and they were their own employee. But in many cases, when a person got into huge debt because of foolish decisions they made or whatever, you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan like you can nowadays, and so what they would do is they would make themselves a bond slave to someone else who had the means to take care of them during that season. So let's say I squandered my property or I didn't plant it and now I was in big trouble. I would give my land to someone who had been a better manager and I'd say, hey, it's gonna take me 10 years to work my way out of this mess that I've got myself into. So I commit myself to you to work for you as your servant for 10 years if you'll cover my debt and get me back my land at the end of the 10 years. And that's what they would do. So it was a a willing, even though they had to subject themselves because of it, it was a willing contract that they entered into to get them out of debt. And so Paul's talking to those kinds of situations here. That's kind of like an employee and an employer. And he says, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm, as though serving the Lord and not people, because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. Let me ask you this. If Paul would ask someone who was put into that kind of a you know, contract where he was committed, he was subjected for 10 years willingly, but he was under that person's absolute command for 10 years. If he would tell them to act with enthusiasm and to serve them heartily, what do you think he would say to us who are just under simple contracts? That we could switch jobs really whenever we wanted, if we wanted to. So we are choosing Unlike this person, once they did it for 10 years, you were stuck in that relationship. And he's saying, hey, you have a good attitude, even though you're stuck for the next 10 years. Where you and I, if we don't like our boss, we can just go find another one. If we don't like that one, we can go find another one. And many of us, we keep moving because we think the boss is our problem. But the problem is in here. See, if Paul would say that to a slave, he would say to you and me, we have even less of an excuse for not being more enthusiastic as Christians for how we serve our employers. He said, you serve them like you serve Christ. I dare you to try this for one week. I dare you to, instead of groaning when you get up on Monday and going to work, I dare you to get up and say, you know what, I'm gonna go in and make a difference in my office. I'm gonna do everything plus what my employer asked me to do and see how it affects your attitude and see how it affects your employer's attitude. It'll totally change how satisfied you are with your job. Now here's what's so cool about this passage is Paul doesn't just talk to employees, he talks to employers. He says, masters, treat your slaves the same way, giving up the use of threats, because you know that both you and they have the same master in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. He's talking to employers and saying, hey, guys, quit thinking only of yourself. You often threaten. You often want more and more out of your employees so that you can pad your own pockets and get a better lifestyle, build your business, and get more for you. But are you really stopping and thinking about the good of your employees? Have you ever thought about that? Oftentimes, you're not satisfied and you're constantly complaining about your workers because all you care about is the profit that they bring into your business. How about if you put profit aside for a moment and start caring about them as a person? What if you, instead of increasing your own salary and your own intake every year, you set some money aside to bless or take care of the needs of someone in your corporation that might have a need. And once they see that you care about them, I guarantee they will work harder than they ever did when you lorded it over them. You see, we often think this book is ancient. It's old-fashioned. The irony is when you open it up, every single one of us knows this is the best possible scenario for any environment I might be in, for any relationship I might be in. Next thing is dealing with the uh, last requirement. A satisfying relationship requires me to delight in a proper relationship. A satisfying relationship requires me to delight in a proper relationship. You see, I must have the courage to reject what is clearly wrong and ask God to grant me the desire to delight in these things. I can know all these verses and I gave them here for you so you can go back and review them and start incorporating, but you could memorize every single one of these verses. But if you haven't asked God to change your heart so that you delight in them, then you'll just become a Pharisee when it comes to them. You'll do something like this. It'll be like this. All right, honey, we're going out for lunch today. It's Mother's Day, and I know I've got to treat you like, you know, you've done something this year, and I'm not sure what it was, but, I mean, it's on the calendar. We did it Wednesday because that's Mexican Mother's Day, and now we're doing it again on Sunday. So here we go. Get it whatever you want. I don't care what it is. Cost whatever. I'm paying for it because I know this. I've got to do this. It says it in the Bible. Okay? How good is that going to serve you? It ain't, is it? Because there's no delight in it. You can do it out of duty, but unless you do it out of delight, it has no meaning. And so that's where God comes in. You need him to change your heart, to delight In these truths. I love how David wrote this in Psalm 119, a psalm all about delight in God's word. He says, I will meditate on your precepts or his truths and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Moving on later, he says this, In the next psalm, and again, all these are in Psalm 119. He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What if we started looking at God's word and saying, this is what I delight in more than anything. Yes, the world says I should delight in this, but I know this is what's truly gonna last. This is what's truly valuable. This is what's going to counsel and guide my life. That's what David did over and over again in his life. The next one says this. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, God, make my heart be inclined towards your testimonies and not to selfish gain. This is when you're on the verge of transformation because now you're recognizing that the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And only God can make that change in us. And we're saying, God, change me. To become the person you want me to become. Last thing is the result. What will it result when we pursue these kinds of relationships? And a satisfying relationship will result in humility and Christ-like character. A satisfying relationship will result in humility and Christ-like character. Look at these, rela- uh, these verses we've looked at. Every single one of them in these relationships, you see this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. There's your humility. Husbands, you'll never become a great husband without humility. That's how you know that you're actually fulfilling that role because jesus will develop a humility in you that didn't exist before moving on to wives wives submit to your own husbands there's humility right there you can't do that without humility it's a product of being a godly wife just as it's a product of being a godly husband moving on says children obey your parents honor your father you won't obey someone else meaning you won't put their desires over your own without humility. You won't honor another person, which means you lift another person up to make you look lower. You can't do that without being humble. You'll always have to put people down to make you look good. Moving on. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. See, when fathers poke at their kids like that, it's out of our pride. We're wanting to push them down to elevate ourselves rather than lifting them up. When we want to discipline and instruct them our way or the way I was brought up, or this is what it was like, I walked uphill both ways against the wind with no shoes. You know how we always, you know, dads, we all have to go off on that, right? We all, I think, went to the same exact school because it was always uphill and against the wind you know, from where we lived, right? Instead of submitting to how the Lord calls us to lead our families, that takes humility employees I think we have our masters do the same to them and stop your threatening that recognizing that God is our master is your master as well and there's no partiality all those require humility they require being more Christ-like in our behaviors see when we prioritize being happy over being holy you'll fail at both when your priority is to be happy over being holy, you'll you'll miss out on both of those. But when you prioritize being holy over being happy, you'll end up with both. The very reason Jesus could love his disciples like he did, the very reason Jesus could love people the way he did, the very reason Jesus could confront religious prideful leaders like the Pharisees, the way he did, as well as women at the well types, the way he did, is because he's so delighted in his relationship with his father. He had so much security and so much self-identity in the love of his father that he never had to enter into an unhealthy relationship with another person. You see, Jesus didn't give in to the prideful, religious peer pressure and power of the Pharisees because he didn't require their approval over his fathers. Jesus also never fell prey to the victim-based mindset and powerlessness of the downtrodden because he knew they had full access to the Father through him should they choose. He didn't fall into either end of the spectrum in an unhealthy situation way. In fact, it was Jesus' delight in his relationship with the Father that made what he did on the cross for you and I so unbelievable. Think about it for a moment. Jesus so delighted in his perfect, healthy relationship with the Father that for 33 years, he resisted every temptation that you and I so easily fall to in entering into unhealthy relationships, whether it's employee-employer, husband-wife, friends, whatever they might be, he resisted every single one because he had tasted what a perfect relationship tastes like. And so he had no desire for the unhealthy ones that you and I often experience. But after living perfectly in his relationship with us and with God, he died feeling the weight and consequence of every unhealthy relationship that you and I could ever experience. You see, you and I have participated in unhealthy relationships. We are part of the problem in unhealthy relationships. So if and when we experience some of the consequences of it, I'm not saying it's all our fault, but we as broken people have contributed to that problem, and as a result, we experience the consequences. But what if you had never, ever entered into an unhealthy relationship, and yet you experienced every weight and every consequence of every type of of unhealthy relationship. Have you ever thought of that? What if you never were in an unhealthy relationship and yet you experienced the consequence as if you did everything wrong in the relationship? Only one person has ever experienced that and his name is Jesus. Jesus hung on that cross and in those hours, in those days, He experienced the weight and the consequence of every unhealthy, broken, sinful relationship that this world has ever known, even though He'd never indulged in one. He hung on that cross like He was an adulterer or one who had abandoned His family and just left them there. He hung on that cross Like he was a a single, sexually immoral person sleeping with everyone he could, never intending to commit to a person. He hung on that cross like he was an abusive parent or a rebellious child who would never reconcile or own their problem. He hung on that cross like he was an overbearing boss or an embezzling, lazy employee. He hung on that cross like he was a sexually immoral, child-abusing, child-molester. Even though none of those things were ever part of his life. Why would he do that? So that people like you and me, who have all those unhealthy aspects in our past, could experience the absolute purity and health of a perfect relationship with him. He was willing to experience unfairly the consequences of every unhealthy relationship act so that you and I could experience unfairly the beauty and the glory of a perfect, healthy relationship with his father. So let me ask you something. Let me get real Personal for just a moment. Once you understand who this Jesus is, once you understand what this Jesus has done, why would you ever doubt what he says to you and to me about what a healthy relationship looks like? Why would you ever question that he has any idea what a healthy relationship looks like? Why would you ever say, I'm gonna set this aside, I don't know that this guy goes, knows what he's talking about, and I'm gonna seek out in this world, how can I have a healthy dating relationship? How can I have a healthy marriage? What should my workplace look like? Because no one has ever loved you like he has loved you. No one has ever sacrificed for you like he is sacrificed for you. You see, some of you are here today and, and you're in a marriage that's on the verge of falling apart. And maybe you're in a marriage where you have already taken some steps towards an adulterous affair. Or maybe you've already stepped across that line and walked on that path a few steps. Because you think, uh, God doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what's going to truly satisfy me. Really? You're willing to look him in the eye on that cross and say, you don't know what unhealthy is, Jesus. I do. Or will you turn to him and realize he hung there because of your brokenness and my brokenness. And if you will trust him, he can begin to change and transform. you and I cannot. Maybe you're a parent and you've turned your kids into idols because you fear their rejection or their failure more than you fear disobeying God. You have put them in such a way that you live so vicariously through your kids that if they ever have any faults or they ever have any failures or if they don't experience all the success you have dreamed for them it's going to crush you. And you have turned them into idols. You have turned them into little gods and you will crush them because none of us as humans are are structured to carry the weight of being a God. Only God can do that. You need to step back and recognize your true God-ordained role in their life and love them with a self-identity that comes from Christ so that you can point them To their truer, deeper need in Him rather than looking successful in our world. Maybe you're a child and you've rejected the counsel and authority of your parents because you think your peer relationships are so important and if you can't be accepted by your peers and if they don't think you're cool or they don't think your life's going in the right direction, you just couldn't possibly handle that rejection and so you want nothing to do with what your parents say to you because your friends have become your gods. And so you'll throw away all the wisdom that God has implanted in the parents that he's given you to help launch you out into the world because you care more about what your peers think. You need to ask Jesus, is that really healthy? Or maybe you're a, an employer, or maybe you're an employee, and, and you're, you're, they're there going, I don't think my employer has his best interest in mind. I don't think he, he's making his whole business revolve around my career path. And you just need to learn to submit yourself in that setting and work heartily is unto the Lord. Forget about how you're being treated and start living the way Jesus lived when he walked this earth. Maybe you're a boss and you need to look at your company very differently than you do. Rather than seeing it as your way to lift yourself up, see it as a way to serve those who work amongst you, to love them, to give to them, and to build them up, and start seeing them as people rather than a resource. Imagine a church filled with people that saw relationships in this way. Imagine if if homes started seeing husbands and wives interact this way so that kids were growing up in an environment where they saw the love of Christ in the interactions between their parents. Not perfect, but developing and growing in humility and grace. Imagine if we were a church that sent middle school and high school boys into their schools and those boys, rather than looking at girls and thinking, how can I take advantage of them? How can I make myself feel good and use that girl for my pleasure? Instead they were saying, I see that as like my younger sister. I'm going to protect her beauty. I'm going to protect her dignity. I'm going to be a provider and a protector for her rather than a user of her. Imagine if we sent young girls into these schools who didn't feel like they had to dress in such a way that was trying to gain the attention of boys because their identity was anchored in Christ and they knew their value was not by how they looked to another middle school or high school boy. You tell me a church like that with people like that wouldn't transform a community and I'll tell you you're crazy. That's exactly what will transform a community. That could be this church. That could be people in this church launched out into this city. If We'll just accept what we truly desire for our relationships. Let's pray.